0: From the University of Alberta Alumni Association, it's What The Job. I'm Matt Ray. Hi everyone and welcome to this very special episode of What The Job. This one was recorded live on October 29th, 2022 as part of the Arts and Business Works Career Development Conference. Our outstanding panel of guests spoke in front of a crowd of students from the arts and business faculties and offered really fantastic advice on everything from interviewing to networking to making career changes. I really learned a lot from them and I think you will too. So please enjoy this live episode of What the Job. What the job is made possible with the support of our affinity partner, TD Insurance. Did you know that through the TD Insurance Mellish Monarchs program, University of Alberta alumni are entitled to preferred rates on car, home, condo, and renter's insurance? Save even more by bundling your car and home insurance. To learn more about how you can save, please visit tdinsurance.com slash alumni.
1: Uh, so I am going to introduce. Uh, I'm not going to go into it too much because Matt's going to actually ask about uh, each of their careers. But I will tell you that we have Arden Shea here. He's from Yelltown Partners, and we have Kyla Amran here. She is from Edmonton Public School Foundation. And we have Paul Ingram here, who is from the Silverberg Group. And uh, our own PhD from 2013, the Faculty of Arts. So hopefully, uh, maybe talking a little bit about his experience with arts as well, uh, is Matt Ray. Thank you very much.
0: Welcome, everybody, to this very special live episode of What the Job. Very excited to be here. I'm very excited that you are all here. I know it's Halloween weekend, which is a very fun time for students, but what could be scarier than talking about your future career? I can't think of anything. We have a really great panel for you today, and I'm excited to introduce them all. Before we start, I'm just just out of my own curiosity. How many, hands up, how many of you are business students? Okay, and how many arts? That's a good, okay, maybe it's not. Maybe. I thought it'd be, yeah, there you go. You and me, Kyla. (laughs) Uh, That's a pretty good mix, though, I'm excited. Um, So what I'm going to do is we'll go through each guest. And what I want you guys to do is put yourselves a bit in the shoes of the audience members. Think about when you were a student, what was it that you thought you were going to do or wanted to do uh, for your career? And then talk a little bit about what it is you do right now, and then we'll we'll get into your career journeys after that. So we'll just go through the list. Thank you for sitting alphabetically, by the way. We'll start with uh, <laughs> we'll start with Arden, and if you just want to talk a bit about uh, where you thought you'd be and now
2: where you are. Oh, right. Um, I didn't think I was going to be in Edmonton, uh, but it's still here. Uh, I was supposed to be a doctor, like every good Chinese son, and I ended up in venture capital. And there was a. A very interesting and non-linear road and path in between. Uh, I think the average, the average lifespan of each of my jobs has been three to four years. So as somebody who has moved um, you know, uh, through various sectors and jobs, I've got a pretty good perspective looking backwards now on kind of what some of the common themes were and uh, things that helped me get through there to where I am now. But uh, yeah, that's where I am.
1: Awesome. So it's too bad Carrie left because uh, she was actually a former prof of mine. So <laughs> my degrees in French and German literature, and uh, people would say, "What are you going to do with that?" And I was like, "I have no idea." Uh, my first my first goal was to be uh, an NHL goaltender, the first following Manon Raim. But uh, that that didn't play out, and uh, so went in, did my French and German literature, and uh, I would suggest that to the day I graduated, didn't know what I was going to be five years from that from then. Um, but knew I wanted to be in public service and, and very forward facing work. Uh, now I am at uh, the Edmonton Public Schools Foundation as the director, uh, heading up our uh, foundation to make sure that all kiddos go to school uh, and they have everything they need to do and to love learning, to learn to love learning, because that's how we get them here. So definitely not an NHL goaltender.
3: <laughs> Yet, Yet. Yes. good morning everybody uh, so I was a student at the school of business majoring in accounting and so my path I thought was pretty clear I was going to work for an accounting firm and I was going to one day become partner um, and then one day become managing partner and and I started out that way I started articling with PwC um, because that was an easy and obvious path um, but I've had 10 careers uh, or nine since then so that was my first career and I'm now into my 10th and I'm partner of a company called Silverberg Group and we manage employee benefits for our clients. And so the eight in between were all different. Uh, Not one resembled the other and uh, I chose them all and I don't regret any. Uh, Some were better than others for sure and some lasted longer than others. I think my average was four years. I mean, do the math, I guess, but about four years for um, each three to four years and I think Part of it was curiosity and the other part is I think I suffer a bit from professional ADHD where I just get sort of a little bit bored and I need to look for what the next adventure might bring.
0: It's kind of fascinating because I think uh, with all the guests that we have on this show, uh, a theme is is about movement throughout careers and we um, you often go to school even post secondary with this thought of that you're training for a career. And though I think you bring the skills from your education with you to your career, that path, as as you've talked about, is very winding. So I'd like to talk a little bit about all your your winding paths. I know this might take a little bit of time. But just try to give uh, the audience a sense of where you started and how you wound your way to where you are now. And we'll, do, we'll start with Paul because I definitely remember when we did our pre-interview, you talking about the 10 jobs, it really did stick with me as you said it would. So if you can just go through and sort of like list off those jobs and talk about how you got from one point to the other to where you are now.
3: Okay, well, <laughs> how,
0: how much, uh,
3: so I'll be, it'll be right, like, speed, uh, working yeah. speed. So as I said, the first one was the PwC here in Edmonton. It was a great start. I learned a lot, you know, I, early on, what I learned most was how little, how much I thought I knew, recognizing how little I knew. I remember coming out, I graduated from university with a bachelor of commerce majoring in accounting, I thought, oh, I know a ton about accounting. In fact, I'm, I'm an accountant. And then I started and I knew nothing about accounting. And then I got into PwC and I thought, okay, I'm learning about business. I know everything about business. And then I took my first job outside and I realized I know nothing about business and I have a lot to learn. So I went from PwC to be controller for an oil well servicing company in Calgary uh, and love brought me there. I met a girl at a a tax conference of all things in Whistler. She lived in Calgary, that brought me down to Calgary. And then I got headhunted for the first time, which was kind of flattering and kind of exciting. And I was VP finance for a company called Quebecor Printing. So a big printing operation. Um, and then from there, I owned, my, owned and operated my first business, which is a window and door manufacturing company, and uh, started it up. And it was it, it was it was tough, and it was a struggle. And then we sold it, um, and I was happy to sell it and be out from that. And then I. Uh, this is a long time ago maybe about the time you guys were some of you were being born but there was a dot com uh sort of craze and so uh, a colleague of mine a university classmate had just sold his business in toronto for 850 million dollars after 18 months and he wanted to do the same thing again in edmonton and he found a technology and he needed somebody to be the president for that business so i started that um and it was called time industrial and right when i started the bubble burst and then it got a lot harder a lot more challenging Uh, From there, I started a business for Intuit, so Intuit's the tax software, Quicken, what used to be called Quick Tax. it's now called TurboTax, QuickBooks, so I started a business for them, an online business, uh, which was a cool uh, group to be part of. And then I started another business, a heavy equipment business. I hate heavy equipment, I don't know why I did that, but I did, I stuck with it for five. What I realized is I liked starting businesses and it didn't really matter what the business was, I liked starting businesses and building teams and putting together teams um from there i did executive recruiting coming called at the time conroy ross they'd become optimum talent and then Gallagher's. so executive recruiting i really enjoyed from there i was cfo for a growing um business in the oil field called rotating right and then i landed at silverberg group nine years ago so this is like a personal best I'm, i'm nine years in should be for more i expect i expect to retire uh there um but no time soon and um And what I realized through the nine year or the nine other careers is at the end of the day, there's only two things I was any good at. And it was important for, you know, it took me nine careers to figure that out. Um, It was numbers. I was always pretty good at numbers. Math is my favorite subject. And people. And uh, employee benefits is this perfect marriage of numbers and people. That's what drives it. So it took me, again, it took me 10 careers,
0: but I think I finally landed where I was supposed to be all along. You also seem like a bit of a builder as well, and I wonder how often you realize these skills or these passions or interests, whatever you want to call them, uh, before you got to these jobs. Like you said, it took you nine careers to try to finally figure out what it was that, uh, that drove you that way, but do you think those were kind of with you all along and it was just a matter of figuring out how you could put them into a career, or was it something that you needed to actually do the thing to learn?
3: no i think you know like i you know sitting in your in your seat and it was a long time ago but i remember for me it was a little clearer because i was going to do the accounting so right from when i started day one at university i knew where i was going so i don't know that i had the builder but what i did learn early on and i'll tell you you know mentorship has always been really valuable for me i had a mentor early in my career and have continued to seek out mentorship and have mentors and now curiously i'm being asked to provide mentorship, which I always feel a little uncomfortable with, but I'm happy to do. Um, and I think what I learned through the guidance of mentorship and, uh, and going through these different careers is you, know, you need to spend 30% of your time doing what has to be done, 30% of your time doing what you really like to do, and then that remain that the remainder, you know, a third, a third, a third, but the final third of the time, sort of building your network and growing your network, and and that was really important to me, and and has really paid off. Like, like it started right at university. I remember university. Like I was in the accounting club. I was on the BSA. I was doing those things to grow and build the network early on, and and that was a, that was one thing that was consistent through all the careers. Was looking to continue to grow and build that network and now that i'm in a relationship business our business is all about relationships and and network and connection i'm so grateful that that was something that i was sort of doing from from
0: the start fantastic kyla
1: yeah so um it's interesting to hear when someone says like i was training for a job in university because i think as uh, someone with a french and german language and literature background. I wasn't per se training to be a teacher or training to be an accountant or training for marketing. Um, it was really this this broad-based education went in doing something I loved and uh, was confident that the pieces would fall together at some point. So when I, I left, I'd um, done a couple of victory laps as part of my degree and studied abroad. So it was about seven years on campus I'd been here. And I was like, well, naturally I'll just stay on campus because I'm very comfortable here. So. Um, sought out a job at the university, uh, you know, about 65 applications later, and kind of learning the hard way that when you're out of your undergrad degree, similarly, you're learning what you don't know. Um, I shouldn't be applying for, like, director positions. (laughs) You know, I'm probably going to have to start a little bit lower, but that was a lesson, (laughs) because, again, you think you know a lot of things. Um, During university, I'd also been working for the Fringe Theatre Festival, so that was a really cool opportunity to do something, I want to say semi-professional but not semi-professional it was a professional role throughout school but i was doing it more on a, a contractual basis of course because it was over the summers primarily but gave me a really strong footing in, again that people forward work so staying on campus felt pretty natural um got a role working in our governance office here on campus and uh governance assistant so i was making photocopies and combing through the post-secondary learning act and learning why all the things that i thought didn't make sense on campus as a student were really important and well-taught through by way smarter people than, than me. <laughs> so that was, again, like I say, the, the steepest learning curve for a student going into um, post-secondary administration was really um, being kind of in the heart of the beast and learning about why all these things happen. So it um, wasn't the sexiest of jobs, but it was an incredible way to build a network and to learn about some uh, really important stuff that transfers across education, healthcare, all the public services is that governance element. Um, Again, similarly, I think sometimes you just meet people who kind of go, hey, I think you might be good at something else and and offer you an opportunity. And uh, that happened in this role. And one of our associate vice presidents here on campus was like, hey, you might love alumni relations. It's a pretty cool gig. You're going to plan parties versus, you know, doing a lot of like governance work. Um, So made that transition and loved it. What's not to love about that connecting with alumni and um, around the world? So I did that for a while. similarly my roles tended to be in sort of a one to three length so a shorter period but the difference is i actually i stayed on campus for 12 years so um, you know i'm 37 and i think i've been on campus or when i left it was like 18 years or something so like half my life on campus as a student or staff so uh, after my first role in alumni a new position came up um brand new created to go into the role of volunteer coordinator to create a brand new program and uh, of course, I had this fringe background to, to fall on, but I didn't really want to be a volunteer manager for life. But I was like, this will be a really cool opportunity again to grow some networks and do something I know I'm good at, but do some new things as well. So moved into that position. Um, and then, you know, here and there had some babies um, and uh, jumped back in to very quickly actually move over to work in our office of the registrar. So you guys are all very familiar with that crew. Um, I worked very closely with our student ambassadors and more of a student engagement uh, role. Open house was my beast when I was there. And um, an awesome job, but it's amazing how you sometimes get into a position and go, Ooh, for whatever reason, this is just not the right fit for me, right? So um, only stayed in that role for about a year and then was like, okay, what's the next step here, where am I going? Still wanted to stay on campus because I was still very much in a comfort zone. (laughs) And, you know, you kind of start to bleed green and gold when you're here for that long. Um, And uh, reached out to some colleagues and said, I've never fundraised, but I think I could be really good at it. Um, And then, you know, went through a bit of a winding path there to like see if I actually would perhaps have any skills in that area. And um, found out I loved it. I loved this idea of putting together people, their passions, finances, just making the magic happen. Um, it, it always takes that something to pull it all together. And to be that person was pretty spectacular, especially for the university, which at this point had um, you know, given me so much and I was so passionate about it. <clears throat> so I did that for a while on the uh, the regional front. So traveled across primarily Western Canada, talking to alumni, making brand new friends every hour, seven times a day, <laughs> and telling them about the benefit of um, staying involved and connecting back with the U of A. Um, that's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty cool job to be able to do that and hear all these stories from alumni and whatnot. Um, But it does, when you have young kids and whatnot, can get to be quite a bit and uh, eventually made the transition over once again. It was through uh, one of our assistant deans kind of reaching out, being like, you know, this could be a really cool opportunity to come to the faculty. And as I looked ahead going, what would I want to be now in five years? Because I'm starting to figure that out. And I'm like, well, if I want to like be AVP of Alumni Relations, you can... The, the boss knows that. So I'm like, I'll take his job in five years. I better get some experience out in the faculties. So I moved over to engineering. So this arts kid is over in engineering and uh, talking about fundraising and, and bringing alumni back to campus. And uh, did that for almost four years over at the faculty there. So again, on campus, I was, I was in one, I was one employer for about 12 years when I, when I did leave. Uh, but within that, had five or six different roles. So really was able to see the the diversity that goes into um, running a really well-connected campus. Um, And then eventually again, you just kind of go, I think it's time to like try something different. Again, professional ADHD, I like that. Really like a challenge. And you know, times change. I now have two kids in the public school sector and uh, I myself went to an inner city school and so started to really see, you know, as politics and funding change, the need of perhaps the work I do, but for even younger learners. So, over the over the course of my career, it was really learning that access to tech, access to public education, and exceptional public education was something that was critically important to me, and is something um, that I really wanted to stay with. And. Again, you know, university is incredible, but if we don't connect with kiddos earlier and make sure they're set, set up to succeed, we're not going to um, we're not gonna have full classrooms at the university. So took a step back and jumped into this position and uh, it's been actually pretty new so far, only two years off campus and uh, yeah, but loving it. So it's all connected, it's all education, but again, um, the roles themselves were quite, um, they did definitely have a shelf life.
0: Well, and it's interesting to me because, um, once again, it's another uh, job about people, but also engagement. And, you know, you've studied languages and, and culture and things like that. So I'm curious uh, to what degree uh, your experience as an art student pays off in your, in your job now.
1: I think it's huge. I, uh, as part of my degree, I actually studied abroad twice as well. So I spent a full year in France and a full year in Germany. And, uh, again, you reflect back on those experiences and, you know, as you're you're graduating and you're looking for a job, it's like, oh, everyone said it would pay off, but, you know, is it? Who knows? But then again, looking back and going, oh, well, the situations that those opportunities put me into where, again, making friends who don't necessarily speak the same language, or very well, <laughs> um, but really just being able to put yourself in these new positions and um, take lessons from buying groceries at a different grocery store across the world. I think all of those things translate into each of the roles I've looked, I've worked on, where it's um, the ability to just go, okay, this is something new. I know what my strengths are. I know what my vulnerabilities are, and we're gonna just lean on those strengths and learn something along the way. And I think that completely came from whether it's my classes or or those experiences abroad. Um, that's all from my arts background, I would suggest, yeah.
0: Thank you, and Arden, I'm wondering if there's some uh, professional
2: ADHD in your path as well. No, not at all. <laughs> um, there's a very common theme here, if you're listening, and I think uh, a very important lesson here is that it's okay not to know what you wanna be when you grow up, because I think most of us still don't. Uh, the important thing is to get started. Um, but it was interesting hearing you know, uh, both of your stories about how you, know, you went to school for training, you went to school uh, you know, to learn a language and such. I, I think I went to school to hide out from the real world is uh, why I kept going back, um, now that I look at it. But I started off with a Bachelor of Science degree. I mentioned earlier my parents expected me to be a doctor and that was my whole identity through high school. Uh, they were nurses and so of course naturally that's what they wanted me to be. And so when I went through the science degree, um, I applied for med. Did all the things that you're supposed to do. Studied at the, you know, health sciences library. Did the volunteer work at the hospital, um, all that sort of stuff. Didn't get in. Scored really well on my MCAT. But the year that I applied, uh, if any of you remember the TV show ER, uh, about a year or so, I think or two before that, they call it the LA Law Effect. Suddenly everybody applied and the curve just went up like this. And I remember the counselor actually saying to me, if you would have applied last year, you would have gotten in, but you know, this year was, this was a cutoff and this was you. And that was a soul crushing moment, right? I lost my entire identity because I was supposed to be a doctor. You're always getting introduced as that. All right, so what do I do now? Um, I took a, a, a year off uh, to kind of figure my, 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 my Stuff out. I'll uh, <laughs> use a different our uh, To figure myself out and get my head clear, um, decided I was going to give one more go and I went back and applied and got in for an after degree in business. And that's where I suddenly learned that I had. Uh, an interest and knack for business and people. And I really enjoyed it far more than organic chemistry and biochemistry and physiology. In fact, to get squeamish at the sight of blood, I don't think I would have made it past uh, you know, basic anatomy and physiology. Uh, and coming out of, of business is when I uh, managed to get a job at a market research firm. I had a few different opportunities. I didn't really have a passion. You know. I think that's probably one of the, I'm mean, Cal Newport, Uh, wrote a book, right, uh, so good they can't ignore you. And he says that that notion of follow your passion is probably one of the worst bits of advice that has been given for students in the last century or whatever it is. But I really didn't know what I wanted to do and an opportunity came up. And so I uh, took a job with a boutique market research firm called Advanis. And uh, it's where I gained a lot of computer skills and, you know, utilized my stats background from my psychology degree. I utilized um, a lot of my research abilities, and so it really taught me how to, uh, we were doing uh, predictive modeling before it was even called predictive analytics, right? I mean, back then. And I worked with a lot of computer programmers, so, so that's where I learned to use it. Like, I'm one of those people that barely uses a mouse, right, when, when I'm using Excel. So I gained a lot of really cool skills there. A couple of years of that got a bit burnt out because it was funny, when I first started, I got the keys to an office. I got, a, uh, I got an American Express card. And I, I thought, wow, you know, I've got my own office. And well, why? It's because we were there all day and we had to eat dinner at work, right? And so that culture of consulting uh, is pretty high stress. So after a couple of years of that, um, I found an opportunity to go work on Princess Cruises. So at the time, you know, a lot of people, you know, we you know, work in restaurants to you put yourself through school. I worked in casinos. Uh, and that's where I also kind of got an appreciation for risk and reward. So um, I had, to, back at that time, and again, this is probably before many of you were born, uh, the cruise ship industry was hiring like crazy. And the, uh, Paul, if you remember, the US exchange rate was like 1.65 to 1. So the dollar was good. We were getting paid in American dollars. All my friends were going, and I thought, why not? I've got a two undergrad degrees already, technically, I've got some work experience, why not go for an adventure, because I can always come back with that. And so I did, I took off for a couple of years, uh, worked on the cruise ship industry, traveling around the world, and realized at the age of 30, uh, after I'd done it for a couple of years, that it was time to come home, and uh, you know maybe try, try to kickstart my career again. So I got back, and through some people I knew, got into the commercial real estate industry, in brokerage, and so, That was an interesting lesson in selling, right? Because when you're training to work on commissions, you can't waste any time. You have to learn how to structure your day. You have to be very disciplined and methodical about everything you do. Because if it's not what me and one of my uh, coworkers used to call a money move, which is if you're doing this activity, does it lead you closer to getting a commission? You kind of tend to cut it out because otherwise you don't eat. So I did that for about four or so years. Uh, Learned a lot of great selling skills, learned how to cold call, learned a lot of stuff that was kind of, I guess, antithetical to my cultural upbringing. Uh, Actually, the guy that trained me, uh, he's Chinese, and he taught me that, you know, we're taught to not ask for the business. We're taught to just do your work. It It should speak for itself and just kind of not rock the boat. And he says that more than anything will keep you from being a successful salesman. Uh, you have to ask for the business. You have to know how to close, and that applies to everything in life. It wasn't just real estate, and uh, you'll see how this is relevant in uh, in, a, in a couple minutes. That uh, fast and forward, going, you know, fast forward. Um, we had the great financial crisis, right, back in two thousand eight. Uh, suddenly, working for, on commission uh, was a very, very difficult proposition, and I had an opportunity through uh, some of the projects I'd done for the federal government to go uh, apply for a position that was open on the real estate team of Public Works. And so I got it. Um, spent a couple years in the federal government uh, working on the real estate investment portfolio for Western Canada. And uh, they wanted somebody with private sector experience. They already knew who I was. And even though there was a whole application and tender process, as there is for any public service job, they already knew who I was and were expecting me you know, to come in. So I did, did that for a couple of years, great people. Got to a point where if you work in the federal government, you either learn French and move to Ottawa, uh, or you kind of peek out, right, uh, in your career. And that's, that's the federal public service. So I was starting to think about, okay, well, what's next? That whole ishy feet thing. And I thought, well, maybe, I want to get some more depth in finance, right? I've been working in numbers and then, you know, something I'd learned to do was turn numbers into a story. Right, As a data analyst, as a financial analyst, that's your job. And you, you learn that if, with a stats background, you learn that with a uh, research background. Numbers are great, but if you can't turn them into a narrative, then make something happen with that narrative, they're kind of useless. And I got really good at that. And so um, for the, with the federal government, I was like, well, why don't I well, refine my finance skills do an MBA in finance. And my manager was like, well, we have uh, support for that. A lot of large organizations and institutions will, you know, they'll they'll fund that. And I thought, okay, great. You know, at least that's some growth, right? Again, the similar theme we've all had here is like, I I wasn't really growing anymore. I kind of hit a peak. It's time to do something challenging. I thought that would be the MBA and as part of the mba uh, you have to do a uh, application letter a little bit of research saying why do you want to do your mba how do you think it's going to help your career right as you go into and i think most masters programs have something similar so pulling on my cold calling skills as a commercial real estate agent i just phoned up the vice president of real estate at the alberta investment management corporation right aimco which is our uh, provincial pension fund investment manager who now has about 180 billion dollars under management Back then it was maybe half that. I'm sure most people I would think have heard of AIMCO because they've been in the news now, but back then maybe not as much because we tended to stay under the radar. It was a different government, but we won't get into that. Um, and so I just called up Michael and I said, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm from the federal government and I'm um, looking to do some research for my application to the MBA in finance program. Can I just take you for a coffee, right? I just have some questions and I, you know, so I can uh, get my submission going. He was a little surprised because he normally doesn't get a call like that. Normally people are asking him for a job or asking, you know, they're looking to sell him something. So he said, all right, well, we'll we'll set it up through his assistant and uh, we did. And the 20 minute coffee turned into an hour. Turns out he used to be in real estate brokerage. We had a lot to connect on. And he says to me, do you need to finish your MBA before you work at an institution? I've got a spot open this week. I think you should apply. So of course I've laid it cool and I said, I'm not really looking for a job right now. Um, But I'll think about it. Of course, I went home and fired in that application right away because, I mean, this is, you know, for in the world of finance and investment, this is, you know, the major leagues, right? Pension fund, institutional investment. This is Wall Street, Bay Street level investing. And I thought, wow, these are the guys that I've been trying to get in front of as a broker, right, because we're dealing in hundreds of millions, uh, if not billions of dollars in transactions. So um, I got it. I couldn't believe it, but I, you know, I did the interview and several months later I got the job, went to work for Michael in the real estate group and learned so much. And you know, at the same time doing my MBA in finance. And that's another part I actually got in, do my MBA in finance. And the cool thing was I actually took some real estate courses and I was able to do my real estate homework at work and people thought I was working on a project. So it was a really nice way of, and I can say that now because Michael's retired and he won't, you know, <laughs> if he anybody hears this, there's no repercussions for me. Um, but again, after about three, two or three years of that, um, I started feeling, you know, I finished the MBA. And what the MBA does for you is it kind of, I would say is that you think that your horizon is on a certain plane but once you finished it, you realize, oh, what's more out there? And that's kind of a blessing and a curse, right? Because I started thinking, well, what else can I do? I'm not happy with where I'm at because I don't think I'm growing fast enough. So there was an opportunity internally to go over to what was then called being formed as the Responsible Investing Group. And I became uh, the first responsible investing analyst. And this was because um, part of my background was as a green building um, consultant, I guess. you know I had some experience in training and certification Uh, in green building, and I didn't think that was ever going to do me, like, pay off anywhere. But what happened was when I was in the real estate group and the responsible investing group was getting started, the manager knew that I had that background, and plus, because of the trends happening in real estate at the time, I was kind of the go-to person and the the connector in that group for anything to do with green building. And so that's how I got to know the manager, and the manager said, hey, would you like to come over to our group uh, and help me build out the responsible investing team? So I went over there, and then through that work, I really got exposed to public equities, to the stock market. Um, you know, that was a big part of our portfolio. And got to do all of the what we call the proxy voting. So if you own stock, you every year there's voting and stuff that you have to do to make decisions. Well, when AIMCO, at that time, we had, about, what, $38 billion in, in public equities. There's a lot of voting to do. I did all of it for a year. Uh, and I also, but that helped me to um, connect with a bunch of the other Uh, Managers and such, and so it was really about you know building those networks and connections that I still maintain to this day. Uh, Fast forward a little bit down the road, I kind of was you know getting a little bit frustrated because in an institution, it's hard to move up quickly, right? It's fairly flat uh, at least where I was, and it was going to take me forever to move ahead. And another opportunity came up through a. I guess it's a, a, a private wealth management uh, company called Cube that had a responsible investing uh, theme with it, and i had met Ian through i couldn 't remember what it was some industry association or some sort of um, uh, event, and he ran this uh, this fund and so uh, he was hiring for uh, someone to train up to be, to be a portfolio manager, and uh, we met for breakfast one morning at Route 99 Diner, which is. A great place to go. Uh, I'm not plugging because I have any vested interest. By the they way. they can
0: sponsor <laughs> us. We'll take it. Route I've 99. Got a, I've got out. a few
2: plugs here, uh, but, uh, and so he hired me to come on and uh, manage, help manage, and do research in public equities. Um, about a year into it, uh, the company restructured, and so it wasn't a fit anymore. I mean, it was it was amicable, and you know he let me go, um, and he said, look, we we can make it a layoff, and you know so that you can claim unemployment. But I, was, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But uh, It's already recorded? <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> anyway, it was very amicable was my point. And I'm thinking, well, there's no way I can pay my bills on unemployment. And so, uh, interestingly enough, speaking about networking, the same day that I was laid off, I was having lunch with my former manager at the federal government of Public Works, Ben. And, ben just, and I, I sat down with Ben. I said, you won't believe what happened. First time in my life I've been laid off from a job. And I said it was amicable. It wasn't. It's was just a restructuring. that wasn't, you know, uh, a fit for me anymore in the company. And so Ben says, "Well, if you're interested, um, I've got. A, you can come. I can put you on a three-month uh, temporary contract." Is this is this how it always goes for you? Like you just meet people and they offer you a job? You, I kind of. You know, I mean, um, it's <laughs> this seems to be a theme, and I think I can tie it together in some lessons learned at the end of it. But yeah, Ben said, you know, if you need to take shelter for a few months. Um, if I get you on a temporary contract, we don't have to run a competition. Uh, we, you know, you can have your old position back, same pay, all of that. And I was like, okay, well, you know, how, how I to say no to that suddenly. So, and then I took a couple, so I had a couple of weeks, I got to, you know, to uh, take it easy. And, uh, knowing that I, I had a bit of time now, and it's funny cause when I went back to the job. There was a box in the corner. Now keeping in mind, this is like almost what? Eight years, probably, uh, five at least anyways, five, six years. Uh, A box in the corner with my name on it, with my files still sitting there because some projects take that long, you know, to or they're always ongoing. So I I went back in. uh, It was great because I got you know familiar faces. I knew how it all worked, and it gave me some time to figure out what I needed to do, and at the same time allowed me to do something meaningful and help. Again, I, I was able to come back in, help them out with some projects. Uh, But then the opportunity came after that, through my networking, um, to uh, get into the University of Alberta managing the Venture Mentoring Service. And so that's, uh, it's currently still there. I was the second manager, but it's, uh, the VMS program is a mentorship program that uh, puts uh, entrepreneurs together with teams of mentors. And Paul is a a part of that team. I recruited him, in in fact, when uh, when I was the manager there. So small world that it is. And so, uh, and, and how I got that was again through a few people that I had connected with. Um, actually, it was funny to, when I was new. I really I'm looking back when I knew that it was kind of getting towards my end of my time at the investment management firm uh, at Cube. Uh, one of the interviews that I had done was for the job of director at eHub, and Tony Briggs uh, was one of the professors who ran that, and he also sat on the board of the VMS program. And he told me that I didn't get the job, but I came in a very close second. So when the VMS manager position came up, Tony contacted me, and he says, hey, I think you'd be great for this job. You should apply. And so I did. And, of course, you know, one of the cool things about that job was that Ray Muzica, who was the founding uh, chair, for any of you who don't know Ray, he was a co-founder of BioWare, creator of such the... Greatest video games of all time, right? I was a, such a huge fan. Uh, titles like Mass Effect and Dragon Age. Again, another plug, but uh, <coughs> that's my whole life. <laughs>
0: Iowa can sponsor us as well. That, you no, big Boulder's Gate fan.
2: Yeah, a great, great Canadian uh, and Edmontonian success story. And it was funny because at, at the interview, I had to, uh, I had to. You know, I had to hold back from fanboying uh, Ray because uh, uh, we went to the interview and at the end he's like, well, so, so I started a, uh, a, a software, you know, a, game, a gaming company. I said, I'll stop you right there, Ray. <laughs> and then I went right into it. And so we had a good laugh and we've become friends ever since. But that's how I got introduced into the startup community and made just this ridiculous network. I mean, I had a pretty strong network already from my commercial real estate days. Uh, from my time in uh, public sector uh, and then now but now moving into the VMS program just gave me an access to a whole different level of local people like when I was at AIMCO most of the work I did was international so most of my contacts were overseas never really did much locally the VMS program just opened up this incredible network across the province so after about three years of that, um, the, uh, the fund that I work for currently now, a position opened up. So the former manager of this fund, Nate Glubish, who is now our Minister of Innovation, I believe. Uh, but Nate uh, was announcing that he was leaving uh, this position, that position, the one I currently hold, uh, to go into politics. So a couple of the people involved at Yaletown knew me from my work at VMS and said, hey, would you be interested in putting your name in and applying to uh, you know, manage event, be in venture capital and manage this fund? And you know, I thought, this is literally, to get into venture capital, I always use this analogy, it's like jumping off of a plane at 40,000 feet and landing in a cup this size. It's a very difficult industry to get into, and I didn't think I was gonna get into it, and I knew that, I was wanted to do something else because the VMS manager job is about a three-year. You get to that point where it's like, okay, I've taken this as far as I can, I've grown a certain amount, I, what's next? And it was just by putting the word out and letting my network know that, okay, you know, I'm ready, I'm not sure what is, you know, and you start having lunch with people, you start taking them out for coffee, you start, you know, I mean, people's time is valuable, you don't want to uh, take advantage of that, but take them out for a coffee and, And then it was when they were asking around, uh, Ashlyn Bernier, who was the manager before me and a friend of mine, and she was the chief operating officer at Samdesk now, a local tech company. She was talking to them and they were asking her, hey, you know, we need a replacement for Nate. Do you have any suggestions? And Ashlyn said, well, Arden's looking and he's got a finance and investment background. He's also been a business owner. Um, something I missed, um, I owned a restaurant at one point as well. Uh, we closed back in... <laughs> just, just another point.
0: Well, <laughs> I can just cut you off for a second. Yeah. One thing I'm curious about, because what, what what I see is the sort of gist of all this is you're very good at getting recognized at capturing people's attention and at being remembered and thought of for other things. And if you can sort of like sum that up in a minute, what, what do you think is the secret to that? How do you get people to notice
2: you? Um, make life easier for them. Hmm. Figure out what you can do to make their life easier and they'll always remember you because everybody, every CEO, every, you know, senior director, when they're getting hit up for people about careers and this and that, it's always about what can you do for me, right? But it's always about uh, wanting something from them. But I think if you're working right uh, and you're you know your manager whoever you're dealing with I always try to take the perspective of how do I make this person's life easier because then it gets them to want to actually work with you and remember who you are and you know it it generates a very warm feeling so Kyla
0: is that is your experience as well because I know you're quite good also at uh, getting remembered
1: yeah definitely I think um always thinking at it from like that we perspective and coming at it where um you know if we're working on something together, how is this help how is this benefiting both parties? I think it's also um, showing some vulnerability and going into a conversation very much like um you know, how how can I learn from this conversation, no matter what that might be? I mean, another thing we've been hearing is going for coffees, going for lunches. it's It's always like, "Hey, can we go for a coffee? Those coffees are critical. <laughs> those meetings, those small things. Um, I think also having um, you know, being vulnerable, having a level of of humility, asking questions, knowing that people's time is valuable and being fully present. Um, I think all of those things are are often. Um, unfortunately unique when you get in front of, of these folks because rather than asking, um, again, what can you do for me, but more you know, just showing interest in them, taking tidbits um, and really having sort of that um, investment in that conversation at that time, I think is really important and it's amazing how, you know, it's always people are going to remember how you made them feel, right? And um, having that, Um, focus on that moment and knowing that uh, this person took some really valuable important time out of their day out of their week out of their month to connect with you and what they're sharing is um, incredibly valuable and just honoring that I think is something that people remember and so when they think back especially in relationship-based organizations or businesses which I would argue most are, <laughs> any, or any, anything, engineers, whatever it might be, if you're a tech, relationships are going to be at the core, especially of a, a successful career and a happy career, I would also say. Um, but if you make them feel good, honestly, like not, you know, that's an important thing. People remember that.
2: And one, well, oh, and I just want to say it, like it's not when I say make you know make their life easier or whatever it, it a lot of times for your manager that means do your job and do it really well that's <laughs> <Yeah>, true <laughs> really for a manager to know that they have someone they can rely on of course they'd hire you again of course they'd recommend you right that's a big part it's not about you know uh, buying them a birthday gift and remember their kids names and all of that and that's nice but what i mean by making their life easier is making sure that they don't have to worry about you in the position that they need you for Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I think building on that, one of, um, well, scary at the time, but now I look back on it as like a really important lesson to have been learned relatively early in my career. I remember I made a pretty big mistake <laughs> once, and um, it was had to do with a senator here at the university on a regional trip, so it was relatively like out of out of anyone's hands, and, and I, I made a pretty big mistake. And uh, I remember walking to a meeting with um, our AVP going... I have to talk to you about this mistake I made. And we talked about it walking across campus to this other meeting, and I remember being just, like, terrified. (laughs) Like, this was, like, this was a fireball offense. Like, I I mean, it wasn't that bad. At the time, it felt that bad. But I, I look back now on that concept of making someone's life easier or even just at that point, I knew there was a shift between our relationship of... This person knew that I would take accountability for the work I was doing, for the mistakes that, that are going to get made when you're trying different things, when you're doing hard things, when you're taking risks. Like, the mistakes are going to happen. But again, I think it's that making life easier can also mean going, I made a mistake. The mistake's not going to make your life easier but I'm here to be accountable and I'm here to take responsibility and uh, it's a very vulnerable situation to put yourself in because you're obviously, there's consequences to mistakes, (laughs) but it's also like an incredible opportunity, I think, to build on important relationships and to prove and show that, um, you know, you're in it, you're committed and you are going to, to be accountable and that trust that builds is um, immeasurable, I'd suggest.
0: Kyla learned that we're recording, so you shouldn't say the the detail.
1: (laughs) So Uh, beep out who it was. (laughs) Sorry, too close to home. (laughs) Uh,
0: I do, I wanna pivot a little bit because man, the time is flying by and uh, we only have what, three hours, Jen? How long are we here for? Um, So, but I do, I wanna talk about making decisions, making decisions in your career movement and about change and what goes into that. And Paul, I remember you talked about being headhunted as one of the the first moves you make. What went into your thinking about this is a good decision to make? Because everyone here is going to have to make career decisions, whether it's about um, where you start, who you work for, um, what you do, those sorts of things, just all the things. Um, So I'm just wondering what goes into your thought process? What did you do? Did you make like a pros and cons list or is it just go with your gut? What goes into the process for you for making changes? Yeah, sometimes there's a little of all of that. And uh, <clears throat> it's a
3: conversation we have with our kids. Um, our, our daughter, our youngest, Abby, is actually a third year student in arts right now. And I said to her last night, why aren't you coming to this? I said, yeah. I'm, I'm coming to speak to this. Why aren't you there Well I work on Saturday. Oh yeah, okay, that's right. Um, so I think for me, I mean, whenever I looked at, at, you know, at these 10 different careers, I think what played it for me is, is what was I gonna learn was important and who was I gonna be working with? And and, and who I, was I gonna be working with actually ended up being more important than what I was gonna learn. Because what I was gonna learn was from those people. So who was I working with became critical. And I think the question I would encourage you all, because let's be honest, you're not gonna probably work, just have one company work for in your career. The likelihood of that, I mean, my grandfather did work for the same company his entire life, but that's a pretty foreign concept today. Mm-hmm. I would challenge you to always be able to answer the because i'm taking this job i'm, I'm applying here i'm excited about this rule because and to actually have that because conversation with somebody a friend a parent a mentor um, a, a sibling and be able to clearly orate what your because is and as long as you got three or four becauses you're good to go um, but if you can't come up with the because hmm, you better think about maybe there might be something else that does answer the because. And the becauses can change. My has changed uh, throughout uh, my career, but um, I think a because is really important.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting thinking about how your priorities can change as you go throughout your career and how you learn more about yourself as you go. And because there's only one other art student, I'll just, I'll put myself in there a little bit, because I, how many of you are thinking about grad school? Okay, all right. Are, they, are you all arts people? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've been down that path, friends. Um, so I did an English degree, a BA, and then I did a master's, and then I did a PhD. And- when I was doing my PhD at the very start, I thought, oh, I want to be a professor. And then very quickly, I was like, mm, I don't want to be a professor. But I was also, I had the whole sunk cost fallacy thing of like, I can't bail on this degree. So I did get a PhD, and it's still incredibly useful. And I taught in Torrey, so somewhere around here is my PowerPoint about Batman. but. Um, <laughs> Then I went on from there to, to do whatever job I could find, which was in communications, because it's a lot of writing. I'm pretty good at writing, pretty good at critical thinking, that kind of thing. But what I learned along the way is, like I don't really care so much what the job is. It's about what I do in it, which I mean obviously is part of the job. But I just want to make creative things, which is you know, why I do this. Um, so trying to find jobs that would enable me to do that, or else manipulating the job so that I could do those things, which is a lot of what I do right now. So yeah, your priorities can change, I think, as you go along, because I really had no idea. I still have no idea, so it all moves along. And um, another thing I wanna talk about, because I do wanna get through a bunch of different topics, we've talked a lot about mentorship a little bit. Well, a little bit, a lot. How do you find mentors? How do you figure out, how do you make an ask for someone to be, Kyle, you're nodding a lot, so I'm gonna start with you, but.
1: Uh, the question how do you make an ask like that's a fundraiser's like bread and butter because mm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. right. um, fundraising is a lot of what I do in my <laughs> current role and in my last number of roles um, and I because uh, pe- people are like oh my gosh you ask for money that must be so awful it'd be so uncomfortable I can never do that and I think this goes along with mentorship as well is by the time you get to the point that you see a connection you're not asking <laughs> it's this I find often and this isn't all the all the time but in some of my, my greatest experiences, you've had a really good connection, you've had a great conversation, you had a coffee that turned from 20 minutes into an hour and a half, um, all of a sudden it moves just into the natural next step. Um, so fundraising, it's a very similar thing. People will often say, well, what can I do to help with this? And inevitably in the work I do, finances are an element of that. I think with mentorship, it's if you'd like, we could talk about that a bit more. Or do you have questions or whatever that looks like? And I think those opening conversations, just being really listening, being an active listener, and when those invitations come, recognizing them as an opportunity to um, take that mentorship relationship to the next level, as it were, and uh, I think just embrace the opportunity. Sometimes it's more of a formal introduction. Um, Like Paul was saying, you know, you start to get asked to be a, a mentor with the title, and it's like, well, are you sure like you probably got like, I don't know about that. Um, and so I think those more formal opportunities are are there as well. And, and as, a, as a mentor, like I think I've learned a ton from those because they tend to be more formal in, in how they're set up when it comes to scheduling meetings, the type of conversations. Typically, the person who signs up for those mentorship programs um, they, they have a path of questions they want to take. And so on the mentor side, I think that is a very clear, this is my role, this is that role. Um, but again, being just from my background, I would hope that that evolves into more of just that natural, this is a really good fit and um, we're able to mentor each other because that relationship goes both ways, whether you're the mentor or mentee, you're learning both ways. Um, and I think just naturally often those greatest relationships evolve into just, well, I have a question, I'm going to send an email to so-and-so, I'm learning not to use names or titles, to so-and-so and and ask for coffee because I've got this really big decision ahead of me and I just need to toss it by someone. And um, inevitably, they're going to answer that email or phone call and say, absolutely, name a time. And all of a sudden, you've got that, that Rolodex of just people that you really, really honour their opinion. And um, I hope that those folks, you know, honor some time with me and feel as though like I'm really being, um, I'm taking that time very, very seriously. And, and um, yeah, so I, I, I guess it's like it's twofold. But for me, I think a lot of it's just following a natural evolution of a conversation or a relationship.
0: Would all of you say that you participate in mentorship, like you mentor or you've had mentees? Yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah I mean... Yes. Uh, so here's what I'll say about mentorship, because I think it's critically important is, I mean, we've all had you've all had mentors already in your lives, parents, educators, um, other bosses. So we've, you've already had mentors, but continue to be intentional with mentorship. Um, and, in, and here's what I'll share with you. Be, be very specific on what you're looking for. But, but when you ask somebody, Uh, generally they're flattered. Like people like to be asked to be, you know, it's a compliment that you think that highly of them. But if, so be intentional, be the one to seek out a mentor, um, understand what that because is, I'd like you to be my mentor because, but then you need to drive the agenda you need to like, don't expect the mentor then to take over that you need to drive the agenda. You need to be the one setting up the meetings, coordinating the, you know, around their time, uh, driving the conversation. Like don't just show up at a mentorship, like sitting with a mentor and say, okay, share you know just share all your wisdom <laughs> with me, me. <laughs> yeah tell me everything I need to know Isn't that's that what
0: not, you guys are doing right now yeah, I? <laughs> that's,
3: that's not going to work it needs to be you being very pointed with hey here's what I'm facing here's some challenges here's some things I'm wondering about what's your experience what can you share and then and then the conversation will naturally evolve but you need to drive the agenda as as the mentee
0: I find in my experience too people like to be asked mm-hmm. to to give mentorship opportunities people want to give back if they have good experience and I am not, I am probably the only introvert on this panel. Are any of you introverts? No, okay. So I'm the only one who hates talking to people and that's why I'm the host. Um, but it's a, it is difficult, but it is rewarding. And I think you'll find a lot of career opportunities open up by building a network, which I wanna turn back to Arden for a second, because you talked about networks a lot. How do you build and maintain a
2: network? Oh gosh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that one. Um, I think really part of it comes to being with being genuine and part of it comes with, you start by giving, right? And uh, students off, actually I, I used to do a lot of uh, workshops with students on networking and I think the common misconception students have is I have nothing to offer. Why would someone want to be in my network? And that's not necessarily true because your curiosity can be something that's very valuable. You know, if you, have, if you know who you're talking to and why. So I'll give you examples, I, you know, networking, often people think of it as, I'm gonna show up for this big event, there's wine and cheese, I'm gonna hang out with a bunch of my friends, hope somebody notices me, get the free food and get out, right? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of tension around that because you're like, well, what's, you know, what am I supposed to do? When am I supposed to get out of it? Especially in business school, they're all, we're always saying, make sure you build your network, that's so important, do your networking, but never, no one ever really tells you how. And the secret is, is networking only starts with something like that. What networking is, is getting down to one-on-one. Networking is finding those people. So, a piece of advice I've often given, um, I'm not prone to give advice generally, but in this case, it's find out, find figure out, have a list of three people, three kinds of people that you want to meet, right? What do you want to get out of this situation? That's part of the whole decision making thing and anything in life. What do you want to get out of this situation? And so, once you've identified three people, say, you know, when I was in real estate and I went to a synergy event, it would be I need to find an architect to network with, an engineer, and somebody who's a building owner. Once you find those people, your next job is to say, hey, I'd love to meet up with you. Can I take you for a coffee and talk about X? You know, there's something that, you know, I've been reading some research on this and I wanted to kind of get your perspective on it. So as a student, you can offer your curiosity um, and then say, maybe I might have, I'm working on a project that you might be interested, whatever it is, that's it. Your job at that event is to get to that next one-on-one meeting and then from there, the conversation flows, right? As it's natural, and that you can find mentors that way. You can grow networks, but you're thinking about what can I, what can I offer? What can I do for you? Because if you do that enough, the next thing you have as value is your network, and you can say, Hey, you know what? I noticed that you're working on this. I actually know somebody who could be really helpful for you. Can I introduce the two of you? When you start doing that, I mean, I started doing that in my, you know, mid mid twenties, right? And so you build this network that over time it just grows and when people start knowing you to be a connector they'll start coming to you and they'll introduce you to people and then over time you'll have a billion linkedin contacts who you have no idea who they are but that's a different story down the road but i would say that part of your competitive advantage as you grow your career is your network because that's something that no one else can duplicate exactly and for you to be able to say i can introduce you to so and so or you need you know i mean I've been able to help companies find, you know, business development representatives or a new CEO, or help a student find a prof that they needed to um, talk to about some research. That's the value you give. Once you have established that, now you have the right to ask and say, hey, I'm out looking for work right now. And I'm just, if you wouldn't mind reaching out to your networks, you know, uh, do you know anybody that you could introduce me to that knows something about X, right? So start with giving, uh, start connecting people, uh, offer your curiosity. Get into those one-on-ones, and then you can. Once you finish school, you can start doing the ask. I'm in my last semester of school. I'm exploring, re, um, you know, I'm exploring um, this career. Use that student card because CEOs will talk to you if you're a student. But once you graduated, you no longer have that card to play, and now you're just another person out there looking <laughs> for a job, right? Yeah. So take advantage of that as well as, uh, as a student. I look at it's the what we call the uh, the career interview, mm. right?
1: one more thought on maintaining a network i think so i talked about humility which i think is very important as we go through our careers but also be super proud of what you're doing who you're working with what you're working on and talk about it and be like use those those opportunities to um you know i like i'm a heritage home enthusiast our our house just got designated with the municipal resources it's very cool but like I was like, I'm going to talk about that. And then I'm going to put that on my social media. And I'm going to share the the paper copy of this this magazine with people that um, that might have an interest. And I'm going to be really proud of that work because I've put time, effort, intention into it. And I, uh, I think of some of the folks on my LinkedIn where I'm like, I haven't seen this person in 15 years. More. High school. So, But the ones that stand out to me is like back of mind where... I will 100% connect with that person should the opportunity arise, tend to be the people who, not all the time, not like my dog just sat on its own or something, I don't know, but, but they're the folks who are like, Hey, I just created or I just finished the certificate in accounting and I'm, you know, 15 years outside of school and I'm really proud of myself because I had to go back and relearn accounting and math. And, you know, they shared that on their LinkedIn or they participate in a podcast or something and, and add that link. And so I think sharing those successes and sharing the things you're proud about is a pretty natural way to maintain a network because again not every day but every so often you see that pop up and like this this friend from high school um, we may not have we may not have talked but when she puts something up that she's proud of you better believe I'm gonna give it the thumbs up and say hey way to go that's super cool and again top of mind I'm here she would never know I was talking about her (laughs) but it's she's someone who is top of mind and should ever the need for that network to reopen or cross you know it would be the easiest opportunity for me to reach out and connect with her so so balancing that pride with humility I think is very important because you deserve to be proud of the work you're doing and and to talk about it and to to celebrate it
2: yeah that's how you let have opportunity find you right I didn't get into venture capital because I sought it out I got into venture capital because I developed a certain reputation let my network know I was ready for a move and the opportunity came to me and that takes a lot of work I'm not saying that it's just you know overnight you know people start you know, knowing who you are. But you build that over your career. Be known for something and be known for doing something well. And then on top of you looking for opportunities, you'll have the addition of opportunities coming to you.
0: Yeah, it's all one path of self-discovery, really. I mean, I'm not even making a joke here. It kind of is in a weird sort of way that, uh, and I've had this conversation with so many guests on the show, retrospectively, you can really connect how everything makes sense, but the path along the way didn't necessarily make any sense. Uh, I was wondering also just for this audience in particular, if we could try to look at things from that perspective of hiring. Um, When you are, and maybe Paul, because I know you're in executive recruiting and uh, thinking about hiring and building as well. When you're looking for employees and obviously network matters a bit because you want someone you can can trust, but what else else, uh, can people do to make themselves attractive candidates?
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, that's such a loaded question. There's so much. So, well, I'll I'll distill it down to three things, and and these are the three things that I, um, I every interview I do, I actually, I I try to, I, I try to have interviews that are not common, and I ask people to self-assess, and really, at the end of the day, and this is consistent with any career, because that's always what I've done is build teams and put together teams, and I think I've distilled it down to three key buckets. And I'll ask candidates to um, assess themselves out of 100 and where they think. Um, and the three things I ask them about, they always, and they always answer in the same order, is I, I talk about being personable and engaging and, and, and relational and, you know, how do they assess themselves on that? I ask them about work ethic. And, uh, and I remind them that, you know, we're not a sweatshot. I'm not asking you to work 80 hours a day, but, you know, when we show up, we have certain responsibilities. So I do ask about work ethic out of 100, and then I ask about SMART. Uh, and what's curious is they always quickly answer personable, and it's usually in the mid to 80s to low 90s. You know they're engaging, they're personable. That's an easy one; they're very quick to answer that one. They'll generally answer the second one pretty quickly too on uh, on work ethic, and yeah, you know I work hard, and usually that's a little bit of a mid to low 80s response. And then they and then they stumble on smart, and they and they pause, and they and it's a bit of what you talked about the humility versus because they you know they don't want to seem arrogant. Um, But then, you know, I remind them, I'm not asking you how much you know, I'm asking you how are you able to learn and how well are you able to learn and then they get a little more comfortable. And then the smart's usually the lowest of the answers. And in fact, I just we were just out with my uh, oldest daughter and her boyfriend, I asked him the same three questions, you know, to <laughs> self-assess where he was in those three things. And he stumbled the same on the smart. And he's an engineer and he gave himself like a 65. I'm like, really, 65? Because maybe we got to talk about my daughter finding somebody else <laughs> to, to,
0: to start. Uh,
3: I was not impressed with 65.
0: Um, looking for someone in the 80s. Here. That, yeah. So
3: that's really, you know, I, I'm looking for people who are engaging, personable, relational people who are gonna show up. And, and 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 produce and 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 work hard and give it their best effort and then smart and you're all smart you're here you're all and and uh, the reason i like smart is because smart people just process things quicker and they just go at a better pace and they can just figure things out so those are i mean those I'm not, those are not pearls of wisdom and i apologize for that but they're the three things that i consistently have looked for and have held me well
1: i think one thing that's really cool about that actually is for me, looking back, I think the ability to be self-reflective has been critically important as I've kind of navigated a winding career going, like, what are my strengths? What are what are my opportunities for improvement, et cetera, et cetera. But to ask a candidate to be self-reflective right in an interview, like, um, I think that tells a lot even about a culture that is being built, right? That ability to be reflective and to, um, you know, it, like, your goals to, like, be in a room that you are going to learn from every other person in that room, right? Your goal is not to be the smartest person in that room, and uh, it takes a lot of, I think, introspection to pick out those different areas where and where it's like, oh, I am absolutely going to going to learn from this, and I'm just going to sit here quietly, take it all in, and ask good questions. But um, if, you know, for hiring, it's like creativity, which to me falls hand-in-hand with SMART, right, like to be creative and to be able to work through problems, Um, so hiring someone who's creative and authentic, um, that for me puts you at the top of the list, right, like um, 100%, and uh, that the ability to be self-reflective is also important. Obviously there's some skills, depending on the role and whatnot, that of course have to be considered, but you can also teach skills to someone who's creative, committed, Intentional,, um, you know uh, respectful and able to um, be reflective on their own skill sets. So I think that creativity and, and smart in that broad lens is uh, so important. Well,
3: and I think why I've used those trees because you know one of the, one of the things you'll hear a lot, and, and, and candidates, young candidates will often put this, and I even see my own daughter putting it on her resume, team player. So that's a common one, right? I'm a team player. I'm, like I'm an independent self starter, but I'm a team player. So common borderline cliched, but what I'll tell you is, if you're personable and engaging and relational, and if you're prepared to show up and work hard and support each other, and if you're smart, you're gonna be a good team player. That's gonna lead to being a good team player. It's gonna be, lead to being, you know, showing initiative and being a self-starter too. So I guess why I keep going back to those three cores is because they lead to a lot of those other things that we do look for um, in coworkers and colleagues and, and new employees.
0: Well, and careers are such a weird social experiment, right? Like you have to work, especially well, now, not, not as often do we work in offices, but um, you have to habitat with these people for eight hours a day. Uh, you have to get along to get your work done. And um, those different social interactions are, are, are complicated and can affect productivity. So, yeah, all those things are important. Uh, I'm curious also, you know, we're talking a little bit about um, the, the, the cultural barriers to work and I know you talked about how George Clooney ruined your chance to become a doctor because your parents <laughs> wanted you to become a doctor but I, I'm interested in also like you know Kyla you mentioned you went to an inner city school and now you're in philanthropy which means uh, you started at a place uh, uh, you're in kind of an opposite world now you're, you're with the most wealthy people how, how do you feel living in that world does that does it do you feel like you fit right in does your background help you
1: oh absolutely you just fit right in <laughs> No, <laughs> um, so I think in um, so yes, I think my background helps me in that it provides, a, it's, it's um, a perspective that is not always at the table when it comes to philanthropy. So um, I remember first year university actually sitting and watching the news and it was talking about the youth school program here that the Senate runs, that's just brilliant and amazing, but it was just getting started actually. Um, and I'm sitting in the basement doing some homework And it's like, and these inner city students from like, um, you know, basically the poor community of (laughs) uh, Spruce Avenue. And I was like, what are they talking about? I went to Spruce Ave. Like Spruce Ave was an incredible, one of my longest, (laughs) greatest mentors, one of the three people who I think have had the greatest influence in my life was my grade one and two teacher from Spruce Avenue. And so I remember sitting there thinking, that's, they must... I don't understand. <laughs> I like just really not understanding. And so now, fast forward 20 years, and I'm I'm working in um, you know the area of philanthropy where I'm I'm talking to people and and a lot of it's um, a lot of it's education with with philanthropy. And um, I think when you know our circles like you say it's it's an interesting social experiment because often like we know what we know we know what we live and um being introduced to the realities of different areas and um how people grow up it's it's you know part of the work we do is that storytelling uh, you know similarly i remember being at a lunch and offering like oh i went i went to spruce ave and it was like oh thank you for sharing that like it, it like it was this big thing for me to share and i was like Hey man, like I learned how to work hard. Like it's the great one of the greatest schools. Look at our public education system; it's exceptional. Um, but I'm like a first-generation university grad. So as I worked through my career, I did start to, to learn more, and, and through my grad studies, that like oh no, those are all quite exceptional as you go through, like to move through that uh, a path of that that type. And, and I mean exceptional as in not common, <laughs> not exceptional as in fabulous. Um, and so I do think that it's impacted sort of how I now look at the, the privileges and the support and the value of mentors that I've had along the way, because sure, I've worked hard to do each of those exceptional or, or not common jumps, but I haven't done it by myself. Absolutely not. And um, I think the other piece is, and this is just a combination of it all, like, people are people. (laughs) They want to be treated as people. You know, the CEO of a company, the um, president of a university, these folks, they're people too. They, you know, they run around in sweatpants on the weekend, sometimes on the weekday. Um, They want to have conversations and, and be welcomed into spaces as a person, not necessarily as the CEO or the president. There are times when um, we absolutely do have to go through the pomp and circumstance that comes with a role of, of that stature. But I do think that um, all those pieces combined have really definitely just give me a different perspective when I'm sitting at the table of, of folks who are going to make very big decisions. And, um, you know, I mean, again, put me back to <laughs> like where I grew up, the idea of asking someone comfortably for multi-million dollars as a gift. That'll go really, really far. <laughs> like that's just not a that's not a concept that you can even think of when you're um, in a home that had two working parents, you know, working night shifts and day shifts to kind of make it work, right? Um, but I look at that as a strength, not a weakness, and that it does bring a different perspective. And um, and now definitely the value I put in all those relationships back to grade one, <laughs> and um, how that's helped me kind of get to the ability to sit in a room comfortably with CEOs and presidents and absolutely believe in the value of the time we're spending together and um, the importance of the conversation we're having.
0: I think another element, and this is something I've learned from doing uh, other interviews, is how much representation matters in terms of career journey. And I don't know if this has been your experience as well, Arden, because I interviewed a man named Evan Hu. Do you know Evan? Do you know Evan Hu? Yeah, I don't yeah, when I interviewed him and I talked about his career journey and how he started off, he listed off a bunch of jobs he thought he could never do because he'd never seen another person who looks like him in those jobs. So he didn't go down that road. Uh, so for him, you know, hockey player was one of them. He never. <laughs> uh, but so for him, his career was shaped in part by what um, what he thought would be freeing for him, and so entrepreneurship was actually where he he wound up in the end. Um, And so I wondered if that was a similar experience for you, or whether for you, you just kind of pursued whatever you wanted.
2: Uh, It's probably a combination of both, and I think, um, I mentioned to you before when we talked, you know, if I was to write a blog, it would be called The Suit Doesn't Quite Fit, right? Because I kind of went the conventional route of a career that was expected of me by my parents, by Just, I guess, society in general, right? And I never really felt like I fit into the nine-to-five work, uh, you know, Monday-to-Friday kind of uh, office environment. Um, And I think that's what always continued. That was part of the self-discovery and continuing to push myself because I didn't see anybody doing what I was like, that's what I want to do. I never, ever had that. For, and it took me until my 40s even to start getting even close to that. So it's okay when you get out of school, if you spend the next 20 years just kind of you know, trying to figure it out. I'm living proof that you, know, you can make it happen and, and, and still do all right. Um, but it was, I think, finally realizing who I was, what, I, what mattered to me. And I have to actually credit um, Angela Fong, who is the uh, chief corporate officer. She Back then at AIMCO, she was the chief human resource officer. I had a talk with her about, you know, I wasn't really happy. And I was trying to figure out what to do with my career next. And she actually helped me do this uh, survey really quickly. Like a personality thing that showed me that, you know, the personality traits that I was exhibiting were so far off from what my true personality traits were that it was exhausting me. And that's what got me going down the path. Okay, what matters to me? And what mattered to me was... Uh, freedom being you know being compensated for my results and not my hours You know that dreaded feeling you get of like I got to get to the office by 8 o'clock or my boss is gonna Everybody's gonna wonder where I was those kinds of things You know uh, like give the freedom to work if I want to work at night I'll work at night and get it done and then if I needed to have you know Have an appointment in the morning go see the doctor I didn't have to file for uh, some sort of exemption for it I that kind of freedom and the ability to determine my day. That's what I needed and so it was a lot of me figuring out for myself and, uh, because I didn't see it out there. And I think finally getting into venture capital and entrepreneurship and such, uh, in terms of owning a business and such, those are things that appealed to me because as, as Evan said, uh, you have more control and you could do it your way. And now I finally landed in a career where I'm there, right? Um, so yeah, it was just a matter of self discovery, as you were saying.
0: Well, we're almost at time, so I do want to wrap up by just uh, trying to give a little bit of, maybe one piece of advice, don't know, put you all on the spot to try to conjure up one piece of advice, and I'll try to stall by just rambling a bit. <laughs> I will say, one thing that I am always find fascinating is the concept of authenticity in the world of careers, because it's such an inauthentic world on the surface when you look at it, but there is a lot of room to still be yourself, and I'm not really much for building a network, but I built a network by just being who I am and trying to be a, a kind, creative person when I work. And then people remembered me. So you don't have to like, you know, go out there and, and do the hustle, unless that's your thing. Um, but I think authenticity, because people will be able to tell if, you, if you're just pretending. I don't know. I'm not big on the whole fake it till you make it thing. Maybe you guys are. I'm not sure. Anyway, what's your big advice that will solve all their problems? <laughs> Well, we may all say the same thing, so I'm going
3: to
2: go first, yeah. so it doesn't look <laughs> like I,
3: so it doesn't look like I'm copying. Um, and, and it's been said already. Um, I'll share two things really quickly because I know you're tight on time. But the one I'll say first, like, and, and I've recognized it all along my career. So when I got into the when I started and had the window and door manufacturing business, I didn't know the first thing about selling windows. I didn't know the first thing about building windows. I needed to build a team, and I needed to sell product. And so what did I do? I reached out to my network. I had a network, I had some people who knew some home builders. Hey, can you introduce me to this home builder? That would really be helpful. And you know, as Arden said, and he made a great point about, you know, I went to the connectors and connectors are so valuable and I've tried very hard in my life to also be a connector and to give back. Um, So really, really put, A lot like be intentional and purposeful with building your network. When I, you know, heavy, when I started the heavy equipment business, I don't know the first thing about heavy equipment, but I had a network that could introduce me to some construction people and people that needed heavy equipment and people that I could reach out to. When I was recruiting, I didn't, you know, when I was looking for CFOs, I reached out to my network. Who do you know? Can you help me out? So, network has been so critical every stage. And now I'm, now we're employee benefits. I need to talk to companies and see if we can do their benefits. I reach out to my network. I don't cold call because that would be exhausting and I'm not very good at it, but I reach out to the network. So that network that continues to grow, gratefully, uh, has been such, uh, has elevated me every step of the way and I've really leaned on and relied upon. The second thing, when you talked about how do you distinguish yourself in, in the workplace, and you'd asked that question earlier, I remember when I started at Silverberg Group, <clears throat> I had a number of staff and a number of my team coming in with a problem. And, oh, you know, and, and this is a problem and we need to make this better. And I, and, and I was like, I can't solve all the problems. Like they kind of thought that that's what I should be doing. So what I said is, I said, look, don't come to me with problems anymore. Come to me with a solution. So come into my office and say, I've got the solution. This is what we should do. And then tell me what you're solving for. And then that is gonna work a lot better. And so now I've got a team of, of people who do come to me with solutions and the, those that come with some really great ones, they really distinguish themselves and I, and I remember them and think of them. So tag over to you.
1: <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm gonna build a little bit on it, but it is, it is unique, but I'm gonna build on, on that idea of, um, on, we've said this a few times, I think, but um, understanding, um, it's, I agree that leading your passion, leading, going into a passion and just following that passion blindly can be dangerous—not <laughs> uh, dangerous, but like it's probably not the best way to look at you know an absolute equation for success. Because, um, and I've said this all along in sort of my public service career, but I think it applies in so many different things. So, um, at the end of the day, I. Um, I I believe deeply and I value the work I do, and I know that the work I do is building something greater that is going to outlast me. So at the end of the day, if I have a bad hour, if I have a bad afternoon, if I have a bad week, if I have a bad month or a bad year at work, it happens. But every step I'm taking forward, even if those are slower steps at times, be gentle on yourself, put your oxygen mask on first. Those are very key things that um, takes a long time to learn the value of that. But at the end of the day, um, I do think it is important to work on work that aligns with your values and hopefully some passion as well. And I do think that those things will will come together if you can keep that really broad view and that long-term focus and the intentionality with how you build your career. And I do mean intentionally build that because you can make jobs and roles unique to you. Um, you have to go in and you have to give and you have to prove your, prove your value to an organization. But at that point, I mean, I work in a traditionally nine to five kind of space. But you better believe my hours are a lot more flexible than that, because we've been able to build that relationship. And, and I know that that's how I succeed best. Um, but again, it's, it's have the perseverance and the long term force, the foresight to say, today's hard. I'm not thrilled with where I'm at right this second, but here's, here's where I'm going and be very intentional about that. But also give yourself the opportunity to stop and go, okay, I've done a lot. I've moved towards that goal. And now it's time to look, is there a path and do I have to branch? But just use that intentionality and just remember why you're there. I'll start with the why, start with the because. I think that's a critically important piece because at the end of the day, if you know you're, you're building on something and you're giving back and, um, what you're doing will outlast that moment in time. It makes it so, so much more <clears throat> um, meaningful to put the time and the effort in,
2: um, yeah. You yeah, got one of minute, Arden. So that of, obvious, of obvious <laughs> some time. Okay, your greatest asset is your curiosity because that encompasses so much, right? Understanding what you're looking for, what drives you, what's not working, what is working, focus on your curiosity. And that also means uh, to be a great conversationalist means you're listening right, Uh, asking questions. Uh, I think a mistake a lot of uh, students and and people make in general, uh, not just students, when you're networking is you start talking about you. It's all about you. Here's what I'm doing, here's why I'm doing it. Start with asking the other person. Start with being curious about others. The people that are remembered as the greatest conversationalists are the ones where they say very little and the other person is talking. Then you'll be memorable. So I'll leave you with that.
0: Thank you, great. Let's give a big round of applause to our guests. Thank you all very much for coming on, and thank you all for attending today. Thanks for listening to this special episode of What the Job, and thanks to our guest panelists, Arden, Kyla, and Paul, for their participation. And as always a reminder that the best place for alumni to connect with other alumni about jobs, mentorship, or volunteer opportunities is the online platform Switchboard. It's free, and you can try it out today at uab.ca sport It's a great tool no matter where you are in your career journey. That's all for this episode. For What the Job, I'm Matt Ray. See you next time.